0: 67 weeks, let that number wash over you. 67 weeks without being able to shake our hands. 67 weeks without being able to embrace. 67 weeks without seeing your smiles when you wish me a happy Sabbath. And a lot has changed in those 67 weeks. It looks like our choir and our orchestra have stepped into a time machine because you all look way younger than you did last year. <laughs> We've lost a lot during that time, haven't we? You know, Some of us have lost loved ones, others' jobs, parties and plans have had to be postponed, celebrations canceled, Our bank accounts certainly don't look the same way they did 67 weeks ago. But you know what? We've, We've also learned a lot. You know, we've developed a new language, a new lingo. We've been able to innovate in order to stay connected. We've developed grit and resilience We start our conversations now with flattening the curve and social distancing safer at home. Let's be honest. How many of you haven't had a conversation with a friend over the past couple of weeks where you look intently into their eyes and you say, are you Pfizer or Moderna? (laughs) And then you look at the renegade in the corner and you whisper to one another, He must be J&J, because he's growing a tail. (laughs) But because of God's care for us, through His mercy, I'm gonna do something I've been waiting 67 weeks to do. And just breathe in the air. Oh, that feels so good. (laughs) The reality is that the world that meets us on the other side of the pandemic is a difficult one. It's deeply polarized, it's divided. Make no mistake about it, dear church, there are people out there who are hurting. You know, their ears are still ringing with that now infamous phrase in those images that cannot be washed away. And you've seen them. The man laying on flat on his stomach while he cries out. He cries out, that phrase that now echoes in our streets. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. But the Loma Linda University Church is committed. We are committed to go and save a world that is hurting. We are committed to change the rancor and the division and that language that is being spewed on our streets as they are the flashpoint for violence. We are committed to introducing the world to the Prince of Peace. But we can't do it alone. We've learned one more thing. And we've learned one thing throughout these 67 weeks about you. It's something that keeps our pastoral staff humble. Because of your generosity and your commitment to this church body, we are able to continue doing ministry even through a pandemic. And so today I'm going to ask you, I'm going to boldly request that you continue assisting us, not just with your finances, but with your bodies, with your dreams, with your souls, with your hearts, so that we can go out and do the ministry that we were called to do as a community. Well, there'll be time, there'll be time to talk about all those things. But for now... As we are getting back into the swing of life, I want to ask you to just for a moment, pause and think about those instances that take your breath away. Images like the one that is going to appear behind me. At some point. I heard that collective, "ah." So he's so cute because he looks like his mom. (laughs) And I was looking at this picture with a friend of mine just last week. And as medical professionals do, they are always asking questions that are rather odd. Sorry to you who are medical professionals out there. Because my friend looked at me and he said, do you know what happened when Micah was in the womb? Do you know what happened when your baby Kai was trying to come into the world?" And I looked back and I said, Yeah, I know what happened. He swam. And he said, Yeah, but but do you know how he breathed? And I looked back and I said, I have no idea. And he shared with me this image And this description that is so powerful that I want to relay it to you this morning. So, when a baby is in the womb, it breathes in a different manner than you and I. See, you and I, we have the right atrium of our brain, and that atrium is full of blue blood, blood devoid of oxygen. Now, this blood descends into the lungs, and it is in the lungs where it receives oxygen. And at that moment, the blood changes from blue to beautiful bright red. And from there, it goes into the left atrium of the heart. And from the left atrium of the heart, it now is pumped to every cell, to every limb, to every organ, to start oxygenating them. How'd I do, medical professionals? (laughs) But when a baby is in the womb, it is completely different because the baby doesn't have lungs. The lungs are full of fluid. And so all that this creature, this beautiful, beautiful mountain and fountain of dreams possesses is blue blood devoid of oxygen. Do you know where he or she gets the red blood from? From mom. Mom pushes red blood into the placenta, and from the placenta, it goes through this little tiny tube. From there, it moves into a vein, and in the vein, it carries this beautiful blood to the heart. And once it gets to the heart, it mixes with the blue blood, and now you have this beautiful mixture occurring, and swoosh. It is sent out into the baby's body. It returns to the heart, and at this moment, it's supposed to go into the lungs, but instead of going into the baby's lungs, it goes out back into the mother, and the mother breathes out the CO2 and returns oxygenated blood to the baby. It does so because in a fetus, there is a wall, there is a little flap door that is open between the left and the right atrium, And this makes it possible for the baby to receive that amazing capacity to breathe from mom. I can still picture him. My little Kai. My little Kai trying to come into the world. Well, let's leave him there for a second, gasping for his first breath. And let's talk about another type of birth. Let's talk about the birth of the church. To be sure, we, as a body of believers, were born when an uncommon event occurred. And in that uncommon event, God, God was uniquely present So where should I start? Maybe I should start with the shoeless shepherd standing before the burning bush. And God is uniquely present, but that's just the beginning. Or what about those slight slaves looking out somberly into the sea, fleeing from their oppressors and their masters, and God is uniquely present, but that was just the beginning. Perhaps, perhaps we should go and witness that journey-weary woman as she gives birth to a babe amidst manger earthiness and God is uniquely present. But that, that was just the beginning. Follow me then. Follow me then to the tomb where those distraught disciples have gone to anoint a body only to find that place empty. And God was uniquely present. But that, that was just the beginning. So it shouldn't surprise you that a mere 50 days later, a group of people gathered for the common practice of prayer. And God was present in an extraordinary way. HE WAS PRESENT, AND HE OPENED A NEW LINE OF COMMUNICATION THROUGH WIND AND THROUGH FIRE. AND THAT, THAT WAS JUST OUR BEGINNING. SEE, AS WE OPEN THE BIBLE TO THE BOOK OF ACTS, WE FIND, WE FIND A PEOPLE MUCH LIKE US WAITING, WAITING FOR GOD TO DO SOMETHING, LISTENING FOR A WORD. And this cannot be lost on you. If God didn't do something or didn't say something, we would not be. And so our existence, our faith, our belief system is this beautiful amalgamation between a loquacious God who continues to speak and people that, like you and me who are trying to intently listen. So what were they listening to in that upper room? Open your Bibles with me to the book of Acts, the second chapter, the 41st verse. And in our passage, we will read what our forebearers were listening to. The Bible reads, Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to... Prayer, and everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need, and every day they continued to meet together in the temple's courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people and the Lord. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now let your soul sink with those words. Analyze what the divine doctor Luke is trying to do. Luke is providing history But he is not providing history in the same way that a scholar recounts it. Luke understands that the primary tool of history, when it is connected to God, is to recognize that the the past is the pulpit we use to preach to the present. And so what is Luke trying to say to us today? Well, if you looked at that particular passage, you will have found that it is the most moving and masterful chiastic structure in all of the New Testament. And at this moment, you're wondering, what in the world is a chiastic structure? Fret not, let me tell you. A chiastic structure is this literary device that writers in Scripture used It's a literary device where points are made and they build in a crescendo until they reach the apex. And then for good measure, in order to punctuate the point, those same ideas are repeated as you descend. So notice that this appears in the passage we just read. First, we began with evangelism, right? 3,000 people are baptized. And then, then immediately we are moved in into ordinary life to scenes of people praying and sharing, studying together and devoting themselves to a new way. And what follows immediately after they've moved to ordinary life is awe, signs, and wonders. That's at the apex. Then back out to ordinary life. They're selling their possessions. They're sharing with whoever has need. And then once again to evangelism, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. But if you're a careful student of Scripture, you probably will have realized that there's something missing. Where is the awe and the signs, the wonder on the second end of the structure? Oh, here's the good news. Luke leaves the story incomplete because you are the signs and the wonders. You are the miracle in Christ. You are not only the continuation of the story, my dear church, you are the culmination of the story. But how do we get there and what do we do? How do we faithfully reflect the tale that he has called us to tell? Well, glad you asked. Too often, too often, we've made church clickish. A place where we surround ourselves with people who agree with us, who look like us, who believe in us. I mean, just look at our choir in our orchestra who dress like us. <laughs> and the temptation is always there to surround ourselves with people with whom we identify. But the problem is that the gospel hasn't called us to do that. What made this story so magnificent and majestic is that it pushes you beyond your comfort zone. It moves you away from click, and it pushes you and entrenches you firmly in the idea of community. And what does community look like? What is the call to empower communities and not cliques look like? Well, the year was 1967, and the place was the Southern Baptist Convention. Gert Bahana, who had been a very famous writer and struggling alcoholic, got up to the podium. Her hands were shaking Palms were sweaty as she began to describe in graphic detail her struggles with alcohol abuse and her conversion to Christ. As she closed, she walked off the stage to a thundering ovation. And she couldn't help it. She returned to the podium and said, Now I know you are not applauding an old drunk like me. What is actually happening is that the Christ in me is meeting the Christ in you. Community occurs when we are able to see the Christ that dwells in you and we match it with the one who is already living in me. And I know, I know it sounds difficult, and I know some of you are saying, Pastor, that's too Pollyannish, that beautiful picture that took your breath away of your baby, that has deprived you of oxygen, and now you're daydreaming, we can never do that. And that's the true tragedy, isn't it? That famous old preacher and theologian G.K. Chesterton probably puts it best. He says that the real problem, the real dilemma with Christianity is not that the Christian ideal has has not been tried and found wanting, But rather, the tragedy is that it has been found difficult and left untried. It isn't that we have tried it and found that it's wanting, it is that we are so afraid that we haven't even stepped out in faith. And so the question that I asked myself this week, the question that I'd like you to reflect upon is, why is that? What is it that makes us so afraid? Perhaps it's a teaching. Perhaps it's a teaching that one of the disciples shared. You see, the early church believed, they believed that when you came into the body of believers, you were bound together. You were bound to him and to each other. And once bodies are bound, Guess what happens? Possessions soon follow. And you'll notice that as bodies bind, the trinity of things that you consider so valuable, your time, your talents, your treasures, begin to be invested in the community. AND THE APOSTLES WERE ABLE TO COMMUNICATE THAT BEAUTIFUL TRUTH THAT IS COMMONALITY. BECAUSE AFTER ALL, COMMUNICATION IS MAKING SOMETHING COMMON. SO YOU MIGHT BE ASKING YOURSELF, WELL, HOW DO I EMPOWER COMMUNITIES AND NOT CLICKS? Well, the answer to that question is that you engage in communication and not conquest. And if communication is making something common, then when that occurs, if I am faithful with it, then that which I am communicating no longer belongs to me. I no longer have absolute control over it. And that's the beauty of the gospel, that it belongs to all of us. And to those evangelistic messages that are paternalistic, that attempt to say that you need to think like I do, or look like I do, or heaven forbid, believe the same exact things that I do, the gospel says no. No, because we are called not only to mutuality, but to commonality. We're called to be common. And as that happens, the grip that we have on these things that we think are so important begins to loosen and loosen and loosen. One of my favorite preachers, George Rausch, tells a story of what this looks like in practice. He tells the story of two brothers two brothers who lived in a farm together. And they shared. They shared both in the produce and the profit of the farm. Until one day, the younger brother looked at himself and said, hmm, my older brother is married, and he has children. So it isn't fair that him and I are sharing equally. My needs are simple. And so that very same night, this younger brother goes into his bin, grabs a sack of grain, pulls it out, and quietly walks to his brother's bin and deposits it. Unbeknownst to him, his brother was also up that night, and he was asking a different set of questions. As he was musing, he wondered, hmm, I have a wife and children to look after me but my poor brother, he has no one. He has no one to make provisions for the future. And so he descended, went to his bin, opened a sack, filled it with grain, and quietly moved to deposit it in his brother's bin. And church, this happened for years, and for years there was a mystery. Why is my supply never dwindling until one night as they were both walking in the darkness, they bumped into each other? And as they dropped their, their sacks of grain, they realized what had been happening, and they embraced. And as they embraced, they heard the voice from heaven. the voice that calls us to communication and not conquest. And the voice said, here shall I build my temple. For where two brothers embrace, there my presence shall be. Communication is allowing ourselves the opportunity to embrace each other to recognize that in him, all these divisions that we thought were so important are petty. And that's why this church, this movement, full of slaves and women, women revolutionized the world. That's why it brought the most powerful empire known to humankind to its knees. Because they recognized that if you empower communities and that if you engage in communication, God's presence will certainly follow. One more thing. Did you catch that part in our passage? They devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. Contemporary society is plagued by momentary enthusiasm. And you've done it, I've done it. How many times have you looked at your phone and said, this is the most awesome thing ever? We had a birthday this week at the office and somebody brought a piece of prune cake from Loma Linda Market and said, this prune cake is to die for. And no offense to prunes or Loma Linda Market, but really? (laughs) Prunes? To die for? And the problem is that this penchant for momentary enthusiasm seeps into our faith life, doesn't it? I mean, how many times do you turn on the TV or listen to the next best famous preacher and you see the sermon full of tears and gnashing of teeth and you are turned off? Just a singe of cynicism creeps into your heart. Because too often we've witnessed these emotive outbursts be used to manipulate people, haven't we? For Luke who realizes that the past is in the, merely the pulpit from which we preach to the present, IT'S NOT ENOUGH THAT 3,000 PEOPLE HAVE JUST ACCEPTED CHRIST. NOTICE THAT HE DOESN'T LEAVE US THERE. THEY DEVOTED THEMSELVES TO THE APOSTLE'S TEACHING. WHICH MEANS, IF WE TAKE THAT TEXT SERIOUSLY, THAT THE CHURCH ISN'T CALLED TO FOLLOW EMOTIVE OUTBURST AFTER EMOTIVE OUTBURST, WEEK BY WEEK BY WEEK, by week, trying to stage this revival that will move your heart until you've gotten up for so many altar calls and gone in that baptistry so many times that you've shrunk a couple of in- inches. The church immediately after confessing Christ moves into teaching. Because if we are to fulfill our mission in the world, we have to know who we are and what we are about. So you've spent some time empowering your community. You've done the difficult task of engaging in communication, and now the question must be asked, well, what are we about? Adventists have their 28 fundamental beliefs. Our Catholic brethren have their encyclicas and their church councils. The Protestants have 95 Theses. And as a body of believers, we all hold certain creeds from Nicaea through the Athanasian, Constantinople, and finally, the Apostles' Creed. But in this post-pandemic world, what we ought to be about is Jesus. Give me Christ and Christ crucified. The call that we have been invited to partake in is to embody Christ and Christ crucified. Oh, I almost forgot. We left. We left my dear baby, Kai, struggling for his first breath. Do you remember? So the contractions speed up. And he moves. And something really gross happens. All... not that, we're not there yet. All the water that is filling his body and his lungs begins to be absorbed his own body and when he comes out the first emotion that any newborn feels is cold and immediately that flap that shares blood between the the fetus and the mother that closes in the heart the connections where the baby can receive plasma and protein and oxygen for the mother that is sewn shut. And the CO2 levels in the body begin to grow and the baby is blue, desperately gasping for his first breath of air. And then he is swaddled. Because he is so cold that the risk of hypothermia looms large, so he is swaddled. Maybe that's why early Christian Pastors and theologians used birth as an analogy for the church. At first, we receive all our nutrients, our life blood, from our Father. But at some point, At some point, that same Father is commanding you to be squeezed out into the world. And it's a difficult world. It's a world where breath and air are sparse. It's a world, it's a world covered in ugliness, It's a world where you will hear the most horrendous diatribes being spewed by people who claim the same Jesus that you and I follow. And so you go out into that world and the coldness and the brutality of it hits you. May we be a church that swaddles you. MAY WE BE A CHURCH THAT IS CONTINUALLY TRANSFORMED BY THE SPIRIT IN ORDER TO PROVIDE AND FILL YOUR SOULS WITH THE BREATH OF HOPE. BECAUSE LET ME TELL YOU REALLY WHAT OUR HOPE FOR YOU IS TODAY. DEAR CHURCH, WE WANT YOU TO GO OUT. WE WANT YOU, WE NEED YOU TO GO OUT, AND WE NEED YOU TO GO OUT AND BE AMBASSADORS OF HOPE AND EMISSARIES OF GRACE. We need you to embody Christ and Christ crucified because the church is the body of Christ in history. Oscar Romero was the Archbishop of El Salvador. He understood the notion and the idea of embodying Christ and Christ crucified. And he preached it boldly. Romero was murdered for his beliefs. And as he delivered his last homily outside of the cathedral in San Salvador, he used these words. He said, God's best microphone is Christ, And Christ's best microphone is the church, and the church is all of us. So go out and live your life as if you are a true microphone of God our Lord. Empower communities. Engage in communication. Embody Christ. Christ crucified. That's what discipleship is all about. And if you're able to do these things, maybe one day, maybe one day you will breathe anew. Your, Your lungs will fill with that wondrous air from the Spirit, and you will see the skies unfolding And you will hear the stars applauding. And the voice will be heard once again, well done, a faithful servant. As you see him face to face, Jesus, our Christ, crucified.